Pump up the volume on your parenting with Parent Pump Radio. Tune into something different that makes a difference. At Parent Pump Radio, instead of a ripple, we choose to create a splash. Get energized, get inspired, and get informed with how to parent in the new millennium with your host and parent coach super guide, Jacqueline T.D. Wynn. Hi, this is Jacqueline T.D. Wynn. Welcome to Parent Pump Radio. Our show is all about dynamic family leadership, becoming financially free, and leaving a profound legacy for our children. Be sure to get my new book called True Legacy Wealth, Creating Generational Wealth Through Real Estate Investing. The link is in the show notes. If you're looking for a speaker for your organization or event, please contact me at info at to schedule a meeting time. Our show is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and syndicated on RethinkRadio.org, OneIdeaAway.com, and Armed Radio. Okay, so September is National Suicide Prevention Month, if you did not know that. All month, mental health advocates, prevention organization, survivors, allies, and community members unite to promote suicide prevention awareness. Now, maybe you didn't know these statistics, but suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. and is the, and is the second leading cause of death for kids aged 10 to 24 years old. Each day in our nation, there are over 3,000 attempts by young people grades 9 to 12, and if grades 7 8 were applied, numbers would be even higher. Four out of five teens who attempt suicide have given clear warning signs. The warning signs are there. And our guest today, and I'm laughing because he is making funny faces, <laughs> is also known as the mental health comedian. He is a suicide prevention speaker and trainer. He is a five-time TEDx speaker and was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. That's why he's so funny. He is a motivational public speaker who uses his life lessons to start the conversation, giving people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression and suicide and doing it by coming out, as it were, standing in his truth and doing it with humor. He believes that where there's humor, there is hope. Where there is laughter, there is life, and nobody dies laughing. That is true. And the right person at the right time with the right information can save a life. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to Frank King. Hi, Frank. I love that you're a comedian talking about depression and suicide because every time we bring that subject up, it's, it's very sad. I want to know, why is a comedian talking about depression and suicide? Jacqueline, I think the um, comedian's a good choice. A couple of reasons. One, if you think about it, the comedian's job is and always has been since the time of the court jester to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless. And I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those powerless in its grip. Uh, number two, of what you said it, whether there's humor, there's hope, whether there's laughter, there's life, nobody dies laughing. And three, your show's about legacy. And I have part of my, part of my legacy, unfortunately, is uh, generational depression and suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I, I was four years old, found her. Oh, I'll, save, I'll spare you the details. It's in my first TEDx talk called A Matter of Laugh or Death. And then I myself came close enough to dying by suicide in 2010 that I could tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Spoiler alert, didn't pull the trigger, which gets a laugh every time I say it at a keynote. 
Uh, the next thing I tell people is a friend of mine was at the keynote, came up afterwards and goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? The, that's where the humor is. Because I get that question all the time. Is there anything funny about depression or suicide? No, there's nothing funny about it. But there is organic humor in the topic. I had a meeting planner say to me one time, I was going to do a keynote. I go, what do you want to cover? She goes, I don't know, just give me some bullet points. I said, Michelle, bullet points, really? Oh, 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 she said, oh, my God, oh, my God. I got it. Nah, don't feel bad. It happens all the time. I got a call while you and I were chatting. It's from a dental, a dental group. The state of Washington, Department of Health, is going to mandate, well, has mandated that in 2020, every dentist, hygienist, chiropractor, mental health professional, doctor, nurse, occupational, uh, th occupational therapist, uh, naturopath, osteopath, all of them are going to have to have three hours of suicide prevention CE to renew their license. Wow, that's great. Yeah, so I got a call from this periodontist office, and they had gone to the Dental Speakers Bureau website to find a speaker to talk about suicide prevention, and they landed on my page, and they're like, oh, my God. You're a comedian and you do a three hour CE? Oh, Lord. Anything but having, you know, who else have a clinician for that kind of time? I'll probably do an hour and a half to, to three hours for them in Issaquah. They'll, they'll bring in the hygienist, the dentist. So it's, um, it, it, it makes it more easily digestible. It certainly makes it more entertaining, especially for yeah. three hours. Uh, and, I, and of course, I have my personal experience, my lived experience, they call it. So, but most often they will say, you know, we wanted somebody to speak on mental health with some takeaways, some learning objectives, but then we saw you are a comedian. So, you know, we wanted it to be a little lighter and that's, that's why I get booked most often is the, uh, the comedy has got the icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. Who wants to talk about three hours of it? In Ugh, death, <laughs> dying, suicide, morbidity, mortality. Uh, no. The rate is climbing. So oh, yeah. I think if, if you didn't attempt it, you know, someone that, either attempted or they succeeded. And I'm one of those people where my sister, we talked about this offline, my sister committed suicide 15 years ago. And it was a week after her boyfriend committed suicide. My family and I had to go through and live that. And it was depression for him too that started all this spiraling downwards. Depression so is, is normally the number one cause of uh, death by suicide. Uh, yeah. By the way, I'm starting the conversation. That was that became the theme of my first TEDx uh, because it turns out eight out of ten people who are considering suicide are ambivalent, and ninety percent of people who are considering suicide they give you direct or indirect hints in the week leading up to the attempt. People want to be interrupted. People want you to ask, "Hey, are you are you having thoughts of suicide?" Flat out, just like that. So because eight out of ten people would probably say yes. Two out of ten which I fell into that category. I wasn't going to tell anybody, but two out of 10 are, you know, they're going to die regardless. But yeah. Yeah. When I did my first TEDx talk right before I did my first TEDx talk, uh, if you don't mind a cruise ship story, cause I do comedy on cruise ships as well. Yeah. I was in the Lido buffet. Every ship has a Lido by the way, uh, buffet and I couldn't find a place to sit down. So I saw a woman at a table for two and there was an empty chair. So I point, she nods. I sit, she looks up, she goes, Hey, are you the comedian? I go, Hey, did you enjoy the comedy show? She goes, I did. I said, then I'm the comedian. And then she starts laughing. She goes, what would you have said if I told you I hated the comedy show? You know, they say I look a lot like him. She said, it's cruise comedy all you do. People always ask. They just assume if you're a cruise comic, that's what you do. I said, now about 12 weeks a year. The rest of the time I'm a public speaker. And I said, oh, listen, I got to brag to somebody. I just nailed down my first TED talk. 
she goes, I love the TED Talk. What's the topic? Well, back when I'd had this conversation many times as I was preparing for my talk. And I thought I knew it was coming. So I said to her, depression and suicide, and started to count down in my head. Three, two, one, boom. She goes, I tried to kill myself twice. We just met. It's yeah. almost as if she's waiting for permission to give voice. Yeah, we'll talk about it. First time she did in college, not very serious. Second time she graduated college. She graduated medical school. She had the knowledge. She had the equipment. She said, Frank, I had the IV started in my ankle. Wow. So that cocktail in one hand, a syringe in the other, and the phone rings. Now, do you pick it up? That's always the question. Well, she thought I better because it might be somebody who would worry. Come over, interrupt. Picks it up, 13-year-old son. She said, I don't know if you heard something in my voice or had a premonition, but he said, Mom, don't do anything. So I didn't, she said. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I decided not to do it that day because I knew he would always feel guilty when there's something he could say or do, which there are things you could say, things you could do. I said, how old is he now? 21. I said, did you know his phone call saved your life? She goes, no. How do you start that conversation? And that became the theme of my first TEDx, start the conversation. It's hard for people to talk about it because they don't know what your reaction would be. And I used to hide not telling people what happened yeah. to my sister because it made people so uncomfortable. And then for the people that would come up after I did the talk, it was almost as if we we're friends for so long. <laughs> yeah, you know, we bonded. Like, connection to me. <laughs> yeah, no, it happens all the time. People, once they realize you have had an experience, either as a survivor or an attempt, again, it cracks open that conversation because they feel it's okay to talk to you about it. Yeah. So now you say that you've gone down this dark journey. How has comedy helped you? It helps me in my career. I always wanted to make a difference. Uh, I was making a living for a long time doing stand-up, but I always wanted to be a speaker. But I figured I couldn't what do I have to teach or tell anybody? You know, I don't really, a motivational speaker, you know, there's lots of them. And um, I, I feel, and if you can do a TEDx, the TEDx committees feel. Yeah. That you should, it should be something you're passionate about. That should be the number one item, you know. Yeah. Today, you could wake me from a sound sleep, go hand me a microphone and go do 45 on suicide prevention. I could do 45 minutes without breathing hard. Because I'm passionate. I mean, I, I, eat it, uh, I wake up thinking about it, go to bed thinking about it. Comedy is the way my family dealt with tragedy and triumph. You know, we, um, regardless of what happened, that was the way we got by. And all comedy, they say, spring from pain. We lost two comics this month to suicide. Um, a friend of mine from Canada, Mike McDonald, says there's two kinds of comedians, diagnosed, undiagnosed. And we even have a podcast called The Suicide Prevention Punchline, which is because so many comedians and creative types uh, and entrepreneurs have a higher rate of suicide than the average, you know, somebody in the general public. I think, I think my third TED talk was mental with benefits, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Because everybody I met who had a mental illness who wasn't completely dysfunctional, always had some kind of superpower, artistic, creative, really smart, athletic, funny. So I thought there's got to be a connection here between mental illness and mental ableness. You know, they must, they exist. And I think the wiring is the same for both. It's like this, it's interlocked. My, my comedy ability and, and imagination is tied into my depression and, and chronic suicidality. It's the way I see the world, the way I process. I said, I had a thought one day that somebody could give me one pill. Here, Frank, take this pill. You'll never be depressed again. You'll never have another, another suicidal thought. The only side effect is you'll, you'll no longer process information like a comedian. Like, whoa, no, thank you. Uh, I, I really do think it's all part and parcel of the of the wiring. So ironically, you know, the thing, the, the thing, the thing that threatens my life is tied into the things that keeps me alive, makes me a living. But yeah, there's this expression in comedy: tragedy plus time equals comedy. And a lot of comedy is 
based somehow in, in pain of some sort. It's a way of, think about this. You're a comic and you're, you're doing comedy clubs. You're probably working four or five shows a week. Something horrible happens to you during the daytime. You don't have to go see a therapist. Just go up on stage and be funny about it. You know, go rant and, go rant and rave. Yeah. We're, we're putting together a uh, comedy show. It's called Mixed Nuts. It's for clubs. Three comics doing 30 minutes each. And they have to talk about at least five or 10 minutes to make jokes about their mental illness with the idea they will hopefully change people's perceptions of what mental illness looks and sounds like. Yeah. And then each one will take each 30 minute segment, you know, comic and make a, a television show like dry bar comedy. You know, we'll make a, each one will have their own little 30 minute comedy special. I'm hoping to sell it to Amazon. Uh, after the show, we'll do, we'll sit on stage and we'll take questions from the audience about real health again, because there's so many comics who, live with this yeah it's a great idea especially going into the school the high school in the junior high because yep. they look at you know all they hear are just sad depression thing which makes their depression even more <laughs> yeah exaggerated yeah. that the one thing one of the things that was very pleasing about doing the mental with benefits is i would have parents i would tell them to take a look at it and then they go frank you know my child has x whatever it is ocd add dyslexia because I, I, I've, I've been to every lecture I've read every blog post I've read every book not one sentence in any of that did anybody say hey by the way um, did you notice that your child is super talented in this area yeah because you know it's a and I think that what the point of the talk was we should divine design the individual the IEP individual education plan to the child to you know minimize the damage done by the disability but embrace enhance and energize the mental abilities right say the kids got ocd well you know the stem program science technology education mathematics perfect because in all those disciplines one right answer <laughs> and and if you're going to push them toward a career find a career where they value precision attention to detail and that could be accounting could be banking where they'll actually pay more because you're really good at and google by the way has begun to hire people on the spectrum who are really good at one thing or another, maybe yeah. socially awkward, but they're really good at one thing or another and they reward them for that special ability. So they're, they're, they're prized, not stigmatized yeah. for those abilities. So if we can convince a child, look, yeah, you've got a mental disability, but here's the good news. You have a mental ability your peers can't even touch. Absolutely, yeah. That would change, uh, that would reduce bullying and stigma and, and reframe it for them could change their entire lives. From that yeah, so, it's, anyway. it's the stigma of what normal is. Yep. Maybe they're normal and we're the one that's weird. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> we can't, because those people can do math like yeah. genius level. I just got my fifth TED talk this week. Uh, the sixth one I'm pitching is depressive realism. There is some science that people who are depressed actually see the world more accurately mm. than people who are neuronormal. In other words, they see it as it actually is in the neuronormal, you know, the uh, pink tinted or rose tinted glasses, that right. that may actually be a thing where they're seeing it like they wish it were. And they did an experiment where they gave the, um, the neuronormal and the depressed person a, 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 a task mm -hmm. and no instructions. Here's task, go. And they finished and they interviewed the depressed people and they interviewed the neuronormal people. And turns out the depressed people were more accurate in their assessment of how good or bad they were at the task. And the neuronormal people had what's called a positive cognitive bias. They thought they were better at it than in fact they were. So, and again, if we could change the frame, I was on a Zoom call yesterday with two comics talking about this mental health comedy tour. 
And one of the two comics saw everything that could absolutely possibly go wrong with the tour, which is invaluable to have somebody who's not just looking at the upside yeah. and not worried about the, he said, well, what about how are we going to get on social media and how many hits do we need? And can we make any money doing this? And I'm watching him thinking, there's my Ted talk right there. He is living, breathing proof. That's the kind of guy you need your company who sees, can see all that could possibly go, wrong. go wrong. Yes. My friend, a friend of mine who's Jewish, has a Jewish grandmother. He goes, yeah, it's like a Jewish grandmother. They always can tell you, okay, Mr. Big Shot. So, Mr. Big Pants, Mr. Big Pants. Yeah, no, it's never going to voik. Never going to voik. He said, every company needs a Jewish grandmother to go, not going to voik. You're going to be wasting your money. Tell us about your book. You have a book. Yes. Uh, well, because you were talking about statistics. It's called Guts, Grit, and the Grind, a men's mental mechanical manual. It's a book for men, for their mental health by men. It's an anthology. I have two female authors and me. Uh, they came to me and said, look, we're writing a book on men's mental health. Would you make it funny? And I said, wait a minute. Two women writing a book on men's mental health? Don't you think you might need a man? So they said, I'm a man. We'll make you co-author. So I said, look, I'll be co-author if, I'll, I'll make it funny if I can be a co-author and if I can voice the books for Audible because I do voiceover work. They said, fine. One of the two women is a suicide prevention therapist. She works with first responders. She's been doing it 20 years. She teaches what's called QPR, question, persuade, refer. It's a, you train people to spot depression, thoughts of suicide, then teach them what to do. And she went to Barnes and Noble looking for a book on men's mental health. There were none. Men have a higher rate of suicide attempts. Eight out of 10 suicides in the U.S. are men aged 30, uh, 45, 54. 80% of the suicides are men. Uh, and in part because, and the book makes this point, is men tend not to talk about their feelings. Right. Not only that, men in general, we wait too long for our colonoscopy. You know, if we get a lump somewhere, we don't, you know, or for chest pain, we're sure it's Taco Bell, not a heart attack. Uh, whereas women tend to go in, you know, they get an acre of pain, they go see the doctor, just generally speaking. Uh, but what's been discovered is that men feel more comfortable taking advice from men. So we got, we gathered 40 guys each with a story, uh, bankruptcy, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, divorce, um, horrible accident, and each one tells a story, and it's 1,500 words. First 500 words, everything's good. Second 500, midstream, things are going bad. And last 500 words, downstream, here's how I'm coping. And so we, around that, we wrapped clinical information, resources, exercises, advice, so that a guy picks it up, thumps to the index, sees his problem, flips open to that story and reads about another guy who is dealing with it successfully. You know, not right. cured, but, but do, doing it successfully. We think, uh, Jacqueline, that it will be women who buy the book. Yeah, for their a dad, men. A, a dad, a brother, a husband, a free, yeah. whatever. And then they go through the book and they find out. Because what happened was, Sarah Gare, his name, the therapist, she, we, we did a survey. We asked women what they thought men's problem, and then we asked men what their problem. Both lists had some similar items, but not anywhere near in the same order. Women thought money was the top, and for men, money was like third or fourth in terms of their problems. Then we asked women, well, what kind of help do you think men would like with their problems? And they made a list. And, men, and then we asked men, what kind of help would you need, would you like? And they made a list, and they were completely different. Wow. What the women thought they should be doing to help the man was not what the men thought they would except as help. So that was the, that was the genesis of the book. And I, I got to admit, as a man, I'm guilty. If my wife gave me a great idea, no matter how great it was, I, you know, like a Nobel prize winning idea, I would poo poo it. <laughs> if the mailman told me the same thing, 
I'm on my way to pick up the, uh, you know, Nobel Prize. Just, just the way men are, are white. Oh, and you hear something else they discovered. In Australia, they have something called the Shed Project, S-H-E-D, Shed. That's a garage in Australia. They discovered if men are not looking at each other in the eye, if they're like under the hood of a car or working on a car together in a shed, they can yeah. talk about anything. But, but you can't put them in a Starbucks face-to-face. Bob, I'm just emotionally spent. Not going to happen. So they give them projects, woodworking, metalworking, car, working on cars, going fishing, facing opposite directions, you know, at, at the end of a yeah, boat. Yeah. While they're not looking at each other, they can talk about all kinds of things. Yeah, road trips. Yeah, road trip, car. As long as you're looking forward and he's looking forward, you can talk about whatever. So anyway, that was the, that was the idea behind the book, besides the fact that 8 out of 10 suicides in the U.S. are are men and you know it's it, we're an endangered species it's it's you know it's that that was the genesis of the book and it was going to be one book now uh-huh. it's four. Oh um, my goodness okay. well so much so much clinical information advice resources yeah. we decided to divide it into four 200 page books instead of an 800 page tome so anyway it should be out first one should be out well this month it should be out um shortly here in september uh and of course it's this uh, suicide awareness month and we'll what's the it. website? I know you have a website for the book. Yes, it's uh, www.gutsgrit, G-R-I-T, G-R-I-T, grind, G-R-I-N-D, uh, gutsgritgrind.com. Okay, that's gonna, I'll put that in the show notes. Yep, and if you go to the homepage and scroll down all the ways, there's an MP3 of the forward, and I, I'm voicing the forward by the gentleman who, who founded QPR, that, that protocol to teach gatekeepers how to spot depression and suicide. Okay. And, and he echoes the, you know, the, the reason for this book and why now and why it's so important because there's nothing like it and men, you know, need help. Yeah. I mean, I think that's why the life expectancy of men is less than women is that's right. mainly probably because of this. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, they get a lump of their testicle, like I said, or they don't get the prostate checked and they just... They they keep all their emotion inside because that's the sign of weakness if you cry, if you talk about it, or if you well, show signs that... You can't handle it. And speaking of uh, rates of suicide, the United States Air Force decided they have, they have had a record number of suicides this year in the Air Force alone, like 78. Wow. So they decided that each base should have a stand-down day, and they would do nothing but talk about suicide prevention, which is great. Um, and I got phone calls from two bases, thinking they might like to book me. And the problem is, and I just, I just wrote a blog post on this, their program is called, it's all about resilience, you know, get, being resilient, teaching resilient. I, and I said in my blog post, look, resilience is not the issue. My mentally ill friends, people who are depressed and suicidal, are the most resilient people I know. Because neuronormal people don't know how much courage and strength it takes to get out of the bed in the morning, paste on a smile, and walk through the world like nothing is wrong so nobody else, you don't burden anybody else with trouble. So I don't think resilience is not the... They don't understand that for every mentally ill person, it's like being Sisyphus, that character from Greek mythology that had to roll the rock up a hill as punishment every day. And when he got near the top of the hill with the rock, the rock would roll back down the hill. So he never quite got there. Being mentally ill, I believe, is like being Sisyphus. Every morning you wake up, there's a rock in the hill. Some days the rock is small and the hill is not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder and the hill is Kilimanjaro. But every day with a mental illness, there's a rock in the hill and you got to roll it up the hill. And I, I don't think you know, people, neuronormal people grasp that, you know, what it takes some days to not just pull the covers over your head and binge watch Netflix, which I would love to do more often than not. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> So what do you think we do need then if it's not resilient? Well, you need it. It's, 
because it's not a matter of strength. Matter of fact, one of the Air Force commanders, one of the bases said that um, dying by suicide was a chicken poop, he didn't say poop, yeah. thing to do. Which, again, is, that's the 2019 version of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Uh, what you need to do is you need to, um, you need to construct a safe care plan. You need to, you know, it's a, I, I believe in not just a pharmacological solution, but a, a holistic. Uh, find a therapist with whom you're copacetic. Uh, I, I add exercise, meditation, and medication. Uh, also, social circle. Uh, I've got people around me. The guy I work out with at the gym mm -hmm. is, I said to him the other day, I'm depressed. And, you know, that, that can make people nervous. Yeah. And rather than being sympathetic, like I'm sorry, he was empathetic. And he said, well, tell me what that looks like. What's that feel like? And I said, well, do you remember when you're 18 years old and, and you, a young man and every other thought you had in your head was about sex? He goes, yeah. He goes, what's your every other thought now? Going back to bed. So you, you need people around you who are not going to judge. Right. Or as they say in the mental health business, not going to should all over you. You should do this and you should do that and you should try fish oil. That's why I tell people at my keynotes, look, if you're suicidal, call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline or text the word CONNECT to 741741. If you're just having a really bad day, call somebody who's crazy like me and I put my phone number up on the screen. Because I'm not going to judge. I'm not going to tell you what you should be doing. I'm just going to listen. Because normal people ask me all the time, I got a depressed friend. What do I do? What do I say? Don't say anything. Just listen. Let them talk freely. and let Share the burden. Be empathetic, not simple. Awesome. Well, we are out of time. Oh, no. Yes. Can you believe it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. We love it. All of the information for your uh, guts, grits, and grind is on, it's in the show notes. And uh, how else, how can people find you if they want to get to know more about you? Well, my brand is The Mental Health Comedian. So it's thementalhealthcomedian.com. If you type in The Mental Health Comedian in any form on, you know, on the Google machine, it'll come up with my Instagram, Facebook, website, Yada, yada, yada. If you want to book Frank for speaking engagements, he's available. If you want to hire him to or, help you or out. If you, you know, having a really bad day, my phone number's there too. Give me a call. It happens all the time. His phone number is 858-405-5653. It's out there now, Frank. Yep, I know. Oh, wait, my phone's ringing. <laughs> yeah. 858-405-5653. That's in the show notes also. Thank you, Frank, for giving some a life to this. Oh, absolutely. And yep. you know what, Jack? We want to get you out there speaking more. Yes. So, yeah, call me anytime. I, you know, I'll give you a few. Uh, I've been doing it for 34 years. I'm happy to give you a couple of tips. Absolutely. I'm going to take you up on that offer. <laughs> okay. Thank you, listeners. And keep on learning. Keep on growing. Keep on living. Keep on living. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Go to parentpumpradio.com and click on the pink box on the top of our homepage to listen to our new and archived shows. To be instantly notified of new episodes, subscribe to our RSS feed. The RSS feed button is located at the top of the page where all our shows are featured. And after listening to the show, go to parentpumpradio.com or our Facebook page to leave your comments, questions, and topic suggestions. Until next time, have a wonderful week.